those who are high on empathy have a tendency to be more in-group oriented. We should navigate to be kind and good to those we appreciate and at the same time not to hate our competitors as much. Hey humans! Welcome back to Demystifying Science. So glad to have you here. Support us with a subscribe and like to keep the conversations rolling. Today, we spoke with Dr. Leif Edward Odison Kinnair, professor of personality psychology with a focus on evolution at the Norwegian Institute of Science and Technology. Our conversation considered the differences between the sexes and how the size of this gap seems to depend upon the economic parity within a given society. We also dug into the roots of conspiratorial thinking and the evolution of the human psyche. I really enjoyed when Dr. Kinnair pointed out that science is a work in progress and we have to be strong enough to change our minds when necessary in order to move forward. That's why each little theory is just one part of a much longer process. Long live the science! Long live the science! Dr. Kinnair has been an outspoken advocate of scientists pursuing science wherever it leads even when the conclusions run contrary to taste. During a debate at the University of Oslo, Kinnair defended the results that suggested women have less desire than men do. He asked, what is most oppressive and destructive? To make women aware of this difference or to just avoid talking about it? Well, learning how to speak about difficult matters was the hardest part of negotiating progress in our civilization back on Albafloss. So, steal yourselves for the long haul, humans. And in the meantime, enjoy the conversation and share it with your Earth associates. Don't forget to subscribe and like, and we will see you next week. Bye. So, you're an evolutionary psychologist. That's me. In general, I've got 40% clinical research work and 60% evolutionary psychology, sex and stuff work of my science and 50% uh, of my positions also teaching. So we've just welcomed 400 new students live due to the COVID situation being under control according to our local authorities. We're doing it live. How do you feel about that? I'm so happy to see people after being locked down this spring. I'm just glad to see people. Uh, Norway has been exceptionally lucky. I think Norwegians have a special personality. You know, the avoidant personality disorder, which is when people don't like feeling too strong emotions, but also like avoiding social stressing situations, that's considered to be the Nordic type. So I hmm. think... Social distancing works better for Norwegians than many. Hmm. So we have a welfare state, which means people can stay home from work and receive pay when they're ill. And also we have a sane head of state. That helps. It helps. I mean, it's something I would recommend many other nations of the world to try out at some point. How did you arrive at that situation? Many, many years of functional democracy, high levels of education among, among the populace, 
I think it starts with the Reformation, uh, where all Norwegian uh, children had to learn to read. So a Bible reading culture, I suppose I would have recommended having more books, but at least reading three books is better than none. And early, early uh, democratic movements, both for women and also labor movements, I think that also helped. And you're fairly isolated, huh? Not really. We're in no? we're in a secluded part of the world, but Norwegians travel so much that it's very hard to get away from Norwegians. Historically, can, uh, too. Yes, I mean, many people of Europe have tried to get away from the Norwegians. The French ended up giving them parts of France. Hmm. But they also colonized Dublin and Ireland, Northumberland, Greenland, Iceland, Sicily, parts of southern Spain. Did you end up in Russia as well? Russia. Pardon? Uh, did you end up in Russia as well? Yes, uh, but that was mainly the Swedes, really. I see. So Norway is perhaps like the other Northern European countries viewed as this exceptional place where the state is taking care of people, but there are high levels of education and democracy and more than anything else, equality, especially gender equality. Well, also socioeconomic equality. There is great, there's a very much lower social economic gradient in Norway compared to, say, the US. And something that I've been reading is that people are very shocked by the fact that gender equality is so high, and yet separation according to gender still remains high as well. So there are different explanations for that. One of the greatest problems is, as we start talking about sexual behavior, there aren't that many theories why there should be sex differences apart from the evolutionary theory that really work. We've been testing social role theory, which we can talk about a little afterwards, uh, but very few of their predictions pan out in Norway. But can we real quick explain what sex differences are for our audience? Yeah, I don't know. Do you two have sexes? Yeah, it's a bit complicated on our planet. We sort of choose our sex. Okay, so how many can you choose from? Six. Six. All right. Um, So in our world, you can choose whatever gender you want to uh, act out, but uh, biologically, there are two sexes. And that's a controversial statement, but really it's only controversial if you don't want to split the two for, uh, gender roles and biological sex. So in our, in our world, you've got two sexes and there are quite a few differences. The defining difference is what kind of um, uh, gametes you make. If you make large ones, which we call eggs, then you're female. If you make small ones, sperm, then you're male. And no one makes in-betweenies. But there's combinations of in-betweenies. 
right? Absolutely. But when when we talk about what kind of sex cells you make a uh, um, reproductive foundation, no one makes in-betweenies. But there are stacks of in-betweeny states. But we're way off topic because we're starting with why aren't the sex differences in Norway uh, smaller? But let's get there. Just okay. remember what the question is. So two sexes overlap on almost everything. There is very little that differs apart from what kind of sex cells, what kind of reproductive cells um, you make. Almost everything else can overlap. And most sex differences that have been proposed among human scientists throughout history, and that's within religion, within philosophy, within biology, within politics, psychology, almost none of those differences are large or, shall we say, significant. But there are some differences. Women seem to be more depressed than men, especially in Western countries. They have more worry. And there are some sex differences when it comes to sexual psychology too. How do you so, measure that worry? Well, the... That's a good question too, which sends us off in a new direction. The most typical measure of worry is something called the Penn State Worry Questionnaire. And it actually just asks people questions like, are you a worrier? And there's a mental disorder called generalized anxiety disorder, which is really just excessive worry. And women are about well, a few percent higher on that than men. So it's not astronomical? No. So two and a half percent of men and four and a half percent of women might have that disorder. So it's not massive difference. Um, depression due to the numbers of people having depression become larger, but still three times as many women are depressed as men in Western countries. Let's finish the sort of the list of differences and then circle back to the question of why they're so depressed. If that's okay with you. Yeah, so if you repeat the question, because now I think we've got about three or four questions that I'm trying to um, well, answer. We started off trying to understand why what there were- difference. Right, there was more yeah. sex difference, if I'm not well, in, in most of our research, when we look at sexual psychology, we find the same kind of sex difference in Norway as in other countries. But for some, for some uh, things, we find a larger sex difference. Like when we ask men and women why they, why they have sex and ask them for their reasons to have sex, then in Norway, we get a larger sex difference on emotional reasons for sex, where women score higher. They actually find that uh, emotional reasons are more important in Norway than in the US. As opposed the, to physical reasons? No, no, just as a reason. Why did you have sex? And then you can, you, you can choose all of the different reasons 
but in Norway, emotional reasons among women were rated higher than men did. While in the US, women in general scored lower on most reasons for sex. So does that mean that they're just having less of it? They are, that's one. They're having fewer one night stands, but they're, I'm not sure whether or not they're having less sex in relationships. I don't know the US numbers for that. Well, this stuff is hard to track, right? We've we've talked to other sex researchers, and it seems like the data collection for these sorts of questions is very difficult. Well, in Norway, being... I mean, one of the more defining things about Norway is the sexual equality, but there's also a high degree of sexual uh, liberalism and also a high degree of secularity. So Norway is a very little religious society. And in prime time television, uh, we've had programs about teaching women how to masturbate. We've had programs showing how to use sexual toys. So um, Norway has every Saturday a program for teenagers where they can ask any question about sex on live national radio. So I don't think asking our students is that difficult. They'll, they'll tell you pretty much how it is. That's fascinating. But I... that's not normal for Earth in general? That's very unnormal for Earth in general. In some countries, uh, people find that sex education is not a good thing. Um, I'm told, I'm not sure about this, but I'm told that ex-president George W. Bush, when he was uh, governor of Texas, tried to reduce the amount of sex education because of it not being proper or moral. One shouldn't teach children to have sex, but that's not what you have to teach people. People actually work out sex pretty much on their own. What they don't work out is how to avoid being pregnant or how to avoid getting a socially transmitted disease. So that's what one needs to teach people in general. Of course, there are other things you can teach people like how to, how to put on a condom or how to masturbate. That is a thing that one might have to teach young women. And so the resistance comes from politicians who find protection and masturbation immoral? Well, in Norway, no. So in Norway, actually, sex education is pretty good. But and in these other countries? Well, in the more religious countries, that's, that's often a feature of religion. It wants to control sexual behavior to a large degree. Do you which think is that a, has an evolutionary basis? I think religion exists to create in and out groups. But once you've got a ruling class no matter who they are made up of, they'll want to control uh, reproductive behavior mm. because it's a competition. We all compete for mates. And if you're in a ruling class in small societies, controlling people's uh, sexual behavior gives you some control over the population. In terms of competing for mates, 
there's been some work that I saw. Do you know Terry Conley? Yeah. So Terry Conley did a lot of work that showed monogamy was just as good as non-monogamy. What do you mean good? Well, people seem just as functional in non-monogamous situations as they are in monogamous situations if they go about it the right way. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, it depends. Okay. So if, if, if we're talking about, uh, about consensual non-monogamy as uh, polyamory, then yes, people who are that way inclined will probably be a little less jealous than people in average. And those people who find that that lifestyle fits them will probably appreciate having that possibility in their lives to a large degree. Are they then, going against evolution? No, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an important caveat here. A lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of communist uh, um, groups in Europe tried to play out a non-possessive open sexual relationship uh, um, program in, in their communities. And a lot of them did not work out. So it's got to be consensual and it's got to be among people who are that way inclined. Can you in give us an example of that? Are you talking about France or? In, in Germany to a large degree, Scandinavian countries, there were a lot of mm -hmm. attempts at having a free, sexual, totally uh, non-possessive uh, approach. And what happened? A lot of violence and uh, breakups of uh, these communities. Wow. So, so people in general have a tendency towards being jealous of their partners having sex with others. But there is a large part of the population who are not and who would appreciate having the possibility to have sex with others or live in open relationships. But that is not the typical pattern. But there is a lot of variance within sexual psychology for both sexes and for groups and people. Is Norway a place where there is more or less jealousy? That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've got numbers on whether it's more, but what we do find is that for continuous measures, the sex difference seems to be the same as for forced choice measures and also larger the sex difference is larger when we compare when we compare jealousy towards someone falling in love with another person or having sex with another person so it does mean that for some areas the sex difference is larger but whether the actual levels are higher some people have claimed that measuring um continuous jealousy rather the forced choice where you ask people what's worse your 
boyfriend girlfriend having sex with someone or your boyfriend girlfriend falling in love with someone so um the fact that we could study it means that maybe there's less jealousy in Norway because we weren't troubled by a ceiling effect so a ceiling effect would mean that there was so high levels of jealousy that we don't get any variance that we can do the statistics on because everyone says it's dreadfully awful it's so bad it can't get any worse so if we ask to what degree is sexual infidelity a problem to what degree are you distressed by emotional infidelity if there's a ceiling effect it means you can't do any statistics with it um and we could so maybe norway is less jealous but i don't know because i haven't really considered that question before that's fair thank you my let's come back to the question of evolutionary psychology and so we can wrap the the beginning questions up a little bit before moving on to the next one in terms of evolutionary psychology what is the explanation for sex differences in the modern human well throughout history we only expect differences sex differences where there have been adaptive differences in what problems the two sexes as groups had to solve over evolutionary time and that's it and that's why we don't really expect many sex differences to be very large because first of all most genes are present in both females and males and most tasks throughout history have had to be solved largely by both sexes but there are some effects of testosterone which differentiates the standard form of human which is female despite what the old greeks thought into male and with that there are some differences in size secondary sex uh, characteristica so during puberty men and women differ and heterosexual individuals find these secondary sex characteristica to be sexually attractive and some differences exist in for example uh using physical violence to achieve influence power and position uh, and also mating opportunities so there's there's a sexual dimorphism between men and women due to this actually in any species where males are larger and stronger than females you can expect that there's been some degree of violence between men to have uh, access to females would you say most animals no not most animals but in those animals where males have fought to get access so elephant seals obviously uh gorillas absolutely and humans to some degree that's good company you keep well elephant seals and gorillas are brilliant absolutely brilliant animals so so one of the uh important sex differences that we look at is for example in jealousy so from that perspective male sexual jealousy which we expect to be higher than female sexual jealousy 
is expected to be an anti-cuckolding device, which means that if she has sex with another man and you can't tell who's the daddy, then he will end up being a dead end if he raises this other man's child. And there is no feedback mechanism. That is the own, evolution is the only way of feeding information back into the loop. So if he raises other men's children due to being sexually jealous, naive, uh, he will end up being a dead end and will vanish, but there is no pain involved. So, so there's no way of learning this in any other way. And one of Earth's greatest poets and writers, William Shakespeare, he knew nothing of genetics or evolution, but he wrote a famous play called Othello about how sexual jealousy is felt by men and, and uh, can drive a man crazy. Also, we know that in many cultures, like uh, the Mongol culture, where Genghis Khan seems to have, or at least his family members, have a lot of descendants in current uh, areas along the old Silk Road. They've had to have nepotistic culture to protect the genes. So, so humans have always uh, been aware of these feelings, but there is no way we can learn it. On the other hand, we've got female uh, emotional uh, jealousy being higher than male emotional jealousy, especially if we compare the two. It's the interaction that's interesting here. Um, and that's because human infants need a lot of investment and having less investment than other women would be detrimental for her children's survival. Hmm. So it's interesting because it seems like on Earth today, there is adoption, there are developed worlds where parents are having less children, sometimes no children. Hmm. To what extent are these evolutionary programs not occurring anymore? And what is the implication of that? I think that with adoption, we see much the same parental investment and attachment as you do with biological children. So I think adoption is sort of a way we can make our paternal and maternal uh, programs run in the care of non-biological uh, kin. There seems to be less so in the case where the children are step. So if, if you adopt and if you go wholeheartedly in for being a parent, that seems to be able to run the programs um, as if it was your own child. But if you're, if you're not in that position, if you haven't really attached to the child in the same way, there is some evidence of less investment and uh, care. Do you so, see adoption in other species? Not that I know of. Lions do it the, 
a very, very different way. Now, lions are also wonderful animals, but there the male will kill all of the last uh, male's offspring. Uh-oh. So, so if, you've, if you've watched this wonderful human film, The Lion King, you'll see how disposing of one male results in the next male wanting to dominate the females and getting rid of all his competitors' children. So it's very sad and very different in humans. So have humans departed from evolution? No. Every day when you can see colors as a human, you're using much the same mechanisms that primates that have to assess fruit have evolved to use. Dogs don't see colors because if, you, if you're a wolf and you want to eat reindeer, it doesn't really matter if it's a mature reindeer or not but you have to know if it's a ripe berry or not. When people find that snakes and spiders and other creepy crawlies are more scary uh, than, than other things, and it's much harder in the laboratory to actually condition people with a fright of any other object than these two, uh, that's a part of your evolutionary history. Mate choice is typically part of our evolutionary history, our interest in alliances, the way we polarize and choose in and out groups. All of it is a part of our evolutionary history. It would be wonderful if we could free ourselves from parts of this, I think. But on the other hand, we don't want to free ourselves from everything because we want all of our evolved developmental programs to run properly, or else our children will just be pools of protein instead of actual functioning organisms. So there's a lot of there's a lot of importance in actually being an evolved uh, creature. Humans humans appreciate empathy, which is an evolved feature. They appreciate kindness and and they appreciate a lot of stuff that is a part of their evolved programs including our ability to speak, which we share with you. Um, and I think a lot of these features that we don't really notice in our daily life, which is called instinct blindness, are things that we just don't consider part of our evolution, but which obviously are. What are the parts of evolution that you would like to see humans leave behind? There's, there's a very fascinating approach where we believe that empathy is good no matter what. But empathy is often only expressed towards our in-group. And those who are high on empathy have a tendency to be more in-group oriented. Now, they might expand the circles, but, but at, on one hand... We seem to be very good at taking care of our in-group. And on the other hand, we seem to be pretty vile towards our out-groups. Now, how, how we should manage to navigate to such a point where it's possible for us to be kind and good to those we appreciate and who we find to be similar to us or to be people we want to take care of, and at the same time not hate our enemies are our competitors as much if that was possible that would be very very nice 
Do you imagine that humans are capable of forming a species-wide in-group? No. Why not? Well, that, that's a sad thing, really. I mean, this, this is a sort of stand-up comedy routine that when two people from, from neighbouring villages meet, they hate each other, and then, then along comes a person from the local city and they hate him together, and then they meet someone from, from the state capital, and then they hate that person, and then they meet someone from another state, and then they gang together and hate that person, and then someone from another country, and they gang together and hate that person, and then they gather together and hate. And, and the joke is that it would take an alien invasion for us to gather all together as humans, which is a little sad from your perspective. I agree. I understand. I absolutely understand what you felt now. But the interesting thing is we just got one of those invasions. It was a virus. It wasn't extraterrestrial, but it still was a common enemy that attacked us. And I do think that we didn't see as much friendliness as we should have seen. Hmm. Some of that has to come down to the fact that there's this difficulty in agreeing on the level of harm that's being caused, as far as I can tell. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here we've got personality differences, too. Um, Some people are more conspiratorically minded. So conspiracy mentality comes into this. Some people have different uh, risk perceptions. So a large part of the population are most afraid of the economic downsides of, uh, of combating a virus, whilst other people are more uh, worried about the health and safety issues. So, so people differ in how they perceive big uh, questions like how to address a virus or pandemic. Are there any unifying features of the groups that are concerned about either one of those poles? Yeah, so um, I suppose for some of these questions, you could say that it's a political agenda, but, but actually the two different aspects I suggested now actually are actually divide people into two groups in two different ways. So there might be more conservatives putting more emphasis on financial aspects, uh, but not worldwide, and more people on the left uh, considering the health aspects as more risky. But when you look at the question of of people being more or less conspiratorial or uh, conspiracy-minded, then within each society, it will be those people who are more educated and are more part of the elite. They will trust the government more. They will trust uh, health advice more. And those who feel more outside and uh, with a lack of empowerment, alienated, they will be more conspiratorial. Do you think that's a long-standing tradition? Is conspiracy a new thing on Earth? That's a good question. It's a, it's a brilliant question. Wow, thanks. I, I, don't, 
I've never been asked that question before. I mean, even though there are people who look at this from an evolutionary perspective, I don't think I've ever questioned. I think this is it. We were talking about this in-group, out-group thing. And I think the fact is that we've been polarizing our populations to large degree lately. But I think there's always been polarization. You can see you can see socioeconomic differences throughout recorded history. So even when, even when there wasn't that much wealth, some people had more. And about eight to 5,000 years ago, uh, for example, uh, the ratio of uh, reproductive success between men and women were 1 to 17, which means that a lot of men were fighting with a lot of men for access to these women. So there's been, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of difference both within and between human groups for quite a lot of time, which I suppose would cause anyone who felt that they were outside or alienated from power to want to to want to understand better why, how, and how to uh, address this question. The problem with conspiracy, of course, is that one is creating um, creating explanations that aren't true, which is in itself slightly maladaptive. But mm. then. A lot of the knowledge that's been passed on in human societies has been about religion or tradition and not about actual science. So a lot of a lot of the stuff that we've passed on is probably more about establishing influence and power and differentiating between people within groups and between groups, and not really much about science, knowledge, and, and actual reality, which is a little scary because it means that we're not very scientifically minded uh, on our own. Historically. Historically, and even now today. So we've got educated groups who should be able to be scientifically minded, but a typical human uh, response to a scientific question is, do I agree with the person who's saying this and does it make me feel emotional? And if we don't agree with the person, if we don't like the person saying it, and if we get emotional, we stop thinking scientifically about it. So this is an interesting parallel to religion almost on some level where human history seems to be a history of having very strong religious beliefs. And the dominant paradigm is one of a religious framework. There's something that one believes in, and the culture around you believes in it, and so you accept it. Well, it's got good guys and bad guys. It's kind of simple and streamlined. Yeah, there's stories that go along that sort of push people into this direction. but. Science has this position in human society where it's possible to believe or disbelieve in it. 
it seems like it almost has this almost religious tone to it in some cases, where people ask questions about, say, climate change. The question is not, do you accept the theory of climate change? It's, do you believe? Do you believe yeah. that vaccines cause harm? Do you believe in climate change? It's a very religious question. It, it's weird, though, because science doesn't want to be believed. Science is a practice among scientists. So, so science, I mean, often I do find that some of the uh, sociology of science theories gets things a little muddled, but sociology of science is important because science isn't anymore the behavior of one woman or one man. It's, it's a behavior of groups of people interacting. And science isn't something that should be trusted or should be believed, but you need epistemic, um, what's the word, confidence. You need to trust people. So say I know something about psychology and I've got a friend who knows something about uh, physics. He might be able to explain to me what's going on in my computer better than I can. I, I could be told the story that there are some very, very small goblins working in there and I'd just have to believe it. Oh, you have goblins in your computers too? I think I think there might be. Sometimes I, I'm pretty sure there are. But the point is, we really, I mean, for most of us, it's magic. For most of us, most of the stuff we experience in our lives, even if it works, it's like it's magic. We can't really know. And most of the explanations we get, uh, there's, a, there's a concept I really love, lies to children, which means... When we teach people, when they start school about the solar system, we draw concentric circles with marbles just the same size, and all of them are in the same plane, and all of them are the same size. And then we tell them that, well, the moon is much smaller than the Earth, and the sun is larger. And, and the, the conceptions and illustrations that we teach children improve over time. Almost no person really knows in detail really looks like because most people really believe the lie to children, which is how we have to teach things because it's so complex. But getting back to the question of science and, and evolution, the problem today is that people reject science based on their own politics and their own group involvement. So if you're on the right, uh, you'll be, in general, uh, apprehensive to evolution and, and climate change. And if you're on the left, you'll, be, you'll question whether, you, whether behavioral genetics, which is one of the most scientifically uh, substantiated parts of psychology, is true, or whether evolutionary psychology is true. And it's, it's very strange because this differentiation of, of, as you were pointing out, belief in science. But science is, if you know science, you're supposed to be critical. You're supposed to question your own results. You're supposed to change your mind at least a few times a year if you're actively researching. Uh. 
In 2015, my colleague and I published one paper on, on, on jealousy where we thought we'd found something smart, new, and interesting. And then we ran a new test uh, with better control to actually really test that idea. And the same year, we published the second paper saying that the finding we reported in paper one isn't correct. We now know it was just uh, it was just fluke result. And now with greater power and better uh, control, we can say with certainty that is not a phenomenon. And That's think, very responsible of you. Well, but I think this is what scientists really do a lot. Some of them do, but there's this huge crisis with replication and the social sciences and... What if you'd won a Nobel Prize? What, yeah, what if well, there's the a lot... the first result? <laughs> That's a question. What if the status I was awarded for the first result was so large that if I... If I told people about it, I would lose everything. I think that's a I think that that's where we go back to being human, and that's when we believe in one study and believe in one scientist. But we should never believe in one study, and we should always look at the group of scientists both testing each other's theories and trying to be cumulative about their own. And also I'd say it's not a crisis. It's a replication crisis is actually when you are absolutist about research, when you believe that one study should be trusted and science should never come with different answers, there should be only one answer and that one's always correct. That, that's when you get politician-style science. My science says, but that's not how science works. So what people call the replication crisis is really just science in action because new scientists are testing some of the older scientists' work and saying, nah, I don't think this pans out. When we look at it, I think, I think you were misled by your numbers and your methods. And when we've checked this out better, we see that it probably isn't that way. And so then, it's fascinating because somebody else might be suspicious and distrustful if they were outside of that discipline and claim there was nefarious actions involved, like the scientist was trying to mislead you instead of just yeah, making a mistake. And that happens too. I mean, we've had quite a few examples of people who really have been cheating. And yet again, humans do human stuff. And a lot of that is nefarious. And some of it is just sloppy. Sometimes it is bad because it's it's on purpose. And sometimes it's bad because human uh, emotions and perceptions get in the way of truth, which is why we actually have science. Science is a method to get past the limitations of human perception. That's mm. the whole point of science. Objectivity. Well, or intersubjectivity. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, when I look at, if I look at an apple, I can see if it's green or red or whatever. A snake won't see this. I think snakes can see is it infrared and, and bumblebees will see ultraviolet maybe. And dogs will see a gradient between yellow and blue. Um, so if the apple is red, some of us will see it as so and not all of us. 
but I think um, if we can find that our methods of measurement largely give much the same results for most of the observers considering these methods, we can at least get some measure of intersubjectivity for our species, but maybe you would see something different and it's hard to say what would be objective in that matter. But it seems that no matter what anyone sees, the apple definitely has a surface that is capable of relaying light of different wavelengths exactly. that are objective. So what is your method of measurement of the wavelength? That's the important point. And that's what I'm saying. Objectivity, um, right? But so, people, people see differences and what one needs to do is try to measure stuff in such a way that most people who are doing the research find approximately the same result. So the differences in perspectives have to be accounted. The sort of the objective thing is the apparent phenomenon. The apparent yeah. phenomenon of the apple is what everyone is looking at. Yeah. And then the question is, how does each group describe it? And yeah. oftentimes it can be happening that multiple descriptions can layer on top of each other. Exactly. And that's why often you'll find that uh, gender researchers and evolutionary psychologists will describe much the same world, but they'll have very different approaches to how to explain why that world exists. So they will see the same uh, expressions of, for example, vocational choice in Norway, but they'll have different explanations for it and different reasons to want to research it. Can you go into that? I wanted to ask you about that because the statistic about gender equality in Norway and the gender segregation of vocational choice is bandied about sometimes. And it would be interesting yeah. to see the perspective of a Norwegian on what that data actually means. Well, in Norway, we have some gender differences that are relevant. Um, men in Norway take larger mortgages and greater risk. They have jobs where they have greater risk and, uh, and, a, and more discomfort. So there are, there are different jobs in Norway where you'll be paid better for working away from home, for working uh, with deadlines, with producing more rather than a standard amount. Uh, and and for those jobs and for education that lead to that kind of a job where conjunctures are more uh, uh, relevant. So in, in good times, they might pay well, but if we have bad times, you might lose your job. That kind of a vocation will be prioritized by men to a large degree. They'll, they'll work more for bonuses than for a stable wage. And, and many of these factors are considered in assessing wage differences in Norway that do exist. But when you use sex as, the, as a multivariate uh, um, predictor, it doesn't explain a lot of the difference. Women in Norway have 
the opportunity to choose to a large degree from preference rather than from necessity. So we'll see a lot more computer engineers in, in India among educated women than in Norway because it pays better for them and they have greater necessity maybe to choose that education. So, so in Norway, we do have differences and to a large degree, the consensus explanation is that it's due to preference. Now, we've got a lot of different campaigns to get men to choose clinical psychology and for women to choose computer engineering. Um, and often these programs have little or no effect. So there are differences, but there are also differences, gendered differences in preferences. And the question is, in a society where you don't have to choose because there is no necessity to choose and you're free to actually choose what you want to choose, um, the question of how to force any greater similarity between the sexes is, is a political question. Why are people interested in forcing the similarities? Well, I think that's because of a very simplistic understanding. Yet again, the science of equal pay and sex differences in pay is, is known among economists. But certain politicians aren't that interested in these explanations. So one of the political parties in Norway support the idea that women work for nothing from October. And that is not really true. Work for nothing? What do you mean? Because of the wage difference. So if women and men had been paid equally, both sexes would have worked with a wage for the whole year. But because of the sex difference, women's wages stop here. But that's if you don't take into account the differences in career choices? Exactly. I see. If you, if you take it into consideration that they're working the same position in the same, in the same company or state uh, division, if you take into consideration all of the other aspects I mentioned, including risk and, and, uh, and, and associated factors, both, both physical but also financial risks, um, you'll find that in a multivariate analysis, uh, sex reduces its predictive uh, value. So why do people misunderstand this so badly? I think it's because we keep telling people that this is so. So it becomes a myth. And when people feel that if you are, if you don't agree with that myth, there's something, I mean, it's a sort of misogyny to not believe the myth, then that becomes a problem, I think. So I think, I think from, from a scientific perspective, we do expect 
that in a gender egalitarian country, we should have equal outcomes. But that must be based on a model of no sex differences psychologically whatsoever. So if women and men make different choices in life because they have different preferences, interests, and there are some sex differences behind this, then you'd have to force the issue on some way to get it to be equal. And I don't think that it, I don't think that will make for a better society. I think giving people equal opportunities, equal possibilities, and not discriminating against people is a much smarter way of going about stuff. And to be fair, in Norway, I do believe we've come pretty far there. But there are things where we discriminate both ways. Um, women in Norway are currently getting better grades in all areas of schooling. They, they are now having higher education than men. They get lower prison sentences for the same criminal uh, offences. There is there are differences in life expectancy, uh, there are differences in health, and there are differences in welfare payouts, and there's differences in sick leave. So, so while Norway is absolutely not a gender egalitarian uh, utopia, I think being among the top three countries for the last 20 years is worth something. But also, there are some areas where we discriminate against men too. And I think the best approach is to try to be interested in how to take care of sex uh, equality for both sexes and on all areas as an opportunity situation rather than an outcome analysis. I wanted to ask you if you think the men are busy. You said that the women are doing better in school. Are the men doing better at skateboarding or basketball or are they just less adept at life in general they play more video games they commit more crime they do more risky stuff which kills them at an earlier age um and that's pretty historical right yeah but now that now that uh now that death due to birth or pregnancy is removed as a risk factor to a large degree in the West among women, there's some interesting research showing that the male-female uh, mortality ratio really is skewing towards uh, men dying earlier. So in Western countries, being born male is actually the greatest risk factor for early death. Wow. And that has had a pretty significant impact on the growth of the men's rights movement. What's the men's rights movement? I think that it's men saying that they need more rights. Did they lose their rights or something? Well, there's been some pretty serious turnarounds on Down on Earth, you know? They're working it out. Well, my position is this. If you play a, if you play gender egalitarianism 
like a zero-sum game, you've misunderstood it. Because in those countries that have higher degree of gender egalitarianism or lower degree of patriarchy, however you define that, you'll find that it's not just women who do better, men do better too. Hmm. So providing more rights to women, lessening religious uh, oppression, more sexual liberalism, more democracy, more freedom of speech, all of these things create societies with more socioeconomic sim, uh, equality too, less crime, less uh, violent crime, uh, and in general, more rights, not just for men and women, but also sexual minorities and also animals and also natural reserves. So there's, wow. there's a rights movement, I'd say, which creates great opportunity uh, for all members of society once you start increasing empathy in a society and once you start creating more egalitarian societies, both socioeconomically and also gender-wise. But empathy tends to breed in-group versus out-group behavior, right? Yeah, yet again. But one, one of the things is the more you, the more you acknowledge that other people should have more uh, access to safety and 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 uh, and once you start thinking that also animals have rights, you, you've really got a society which is moving towards being better for most people involved. So there's something interesting that you said about the fact that men are dying at faster rates than women. And so society could be seen as moving into a condition where there's just more women than there are men. Which is not unusual throughout history due to men being killed in warfare. So in some, in some uh, traditional societies and in some uh, archaeological findings, one imagines that 20 to 60% of young males were killed in either inter or intra-group violence. Wow. So, so throughout history, due to this, there has always been a skew, an operational sex ratio, which has uh, been more women than men. And as I mentioned, five to 8,000 years ago, uh, one male reproduced for every 17 women. So there's, there's been a lot of oppression of young males by older males and societies have really, um, really, I mean, young men aren't very attractive or sexy in their own right of being young men. Being young men is really about being cannon fodder. My question kind of goes to what is happening as these gender changes occur. Because it seems like having 
fewer men for every woman creates a situation where the women get to set the terms of engagement. And in one of your papers, you mentioned that it seems like men compromise their sexual preferences more frequently in relationships in terms of frequency of sex. Yeah, but the first thing you said that I think, I think it's, so in, in a very stereotypical uh, understanding of how some American conservative dads think about this, their daughter's sexuality, they could choose two different colleges to send her to, uh, all depending on whether or not he wanted to control her sexuality uh, so that she has less sex. And the question would be then, should he send her to an all-girls college or to an to a male-dominated college if he wanted her to have less sex? And I think what you were saying and what some people would think was the uh, common sense answer is that if she's in a situation with a lot of males available, uh, that will give a lot of opportunity and a lot of uh, um, enticement. But it, it really works the other way. If, if there's a lot of competition among women for few men, then they will be playing more according to the male rules rather than and preferences. So there'll be more short-term sex in that kind of a situation and more committed long-term relationships in a situation where a lot of men are competing for few women. But that all depends upon female actual choice, of course. Sure. So there seems to be an issue with female choice because there's been a rise of these sorts of subcultures, like the involuntarily celibate subculture. Yeah. Or the hikikomori in Japan, where people are not having as much sex as they want and are horrified by it or choose to seclude themselves from society fully. But the hikikomori, are they actually not having as much sex? I, I mean, aren't they having as little sex as they actually want? Well, you have to ask the question of, oh, it's chicken or the egg, right? What comes first? Ah, okay. So they're opting out of the competition. I would think so. So there was a bunch of really interesting animal studies in the 1950s that were done about what happens in really dense situations where there's a lot of social interaction. And mm. the more social interaction you have that is disturbing and prevents this sort of flow state from developing, as much as you can see a flow state in animals, you start to get various dysfunctions, the hypersexualized and the ones that just check out. Mm. So this is... This is a problem with all zoos. You get a lot of behavior which you wouldn't see in wild. Hmm. But, but humans are very strange animals. I mean, one of the things I love is riding, well, when, when we don't have a pandemic, that is, 
is riding the London Underground and seeing how how close to each other so many different people from the whole world. I mean, you've got every kind of person from the whole world in this tube racing underground in one of our largest cities, people standing so close that you know exactly what they've had for lunch um, and when they had a shower last. And still people are not violent and they aren't, they are actually not necessarily doing anything nasty to each other whatsoever. The levels of crime, harassment and violence are so low. So that's one of the things I like about people. We, we seem to do that transition to the zoo a lot better than, say, baboons. I like that. So these so, groups are sort of exceptional, you think? They're not really portending anything well, larger. I think one of the, that's one of, the, one of the best papers in evolutionary psychology is one called Strategic uh, Modeling by Irvin DeVore and John Tooby. And it's too complex to start even trying to talk about here. Uh, but the point is, when, when we consider humans using comparative methods where we use other species to try to understand what made us specifically human is anti-evolutionary. Because what made us specifically human might be quite, quite different from what made the other species them. Um, mm. we're, we're as related to bonobos as we are to regular chimps but while the so, bonobos use sex to regulate society have a more maternal uh organization and are less uh interested in warfare and and the chimps are quite different they are more into warfare more into paternal uh uh rule and and more promiscuous with with less of the stress relief of sex being present. And, and it's, it's fascinating how if we'd only known of one of the species, we could exaggerate how much a bonobo or regular chimp we were. Now that we know that we're equally related to both of them, we have to remember that the chimps were not the only species not to evolve. They evolved too. And through the last three and a half million years, they've evolved into two very different species, which are similar to us in some respects and dissimilar to us in some respects. And therefore, all, all research which is comparative has to take into account that we don't really know whether the homology or the specific species-specific uh, selection is most relevant. Does that argue against model organisms in behavioral research in general? <laughs> I always tease biologists by claiming that it, that the main point of all biology, no matter what biology you're doing, is Linné's question of notionalism, know thyself. So there is only one model organism, and that's humans, and they should be evolutionary psychologists, all of them. But <laughs> so the, the point here is when, you, when you're an expert in flatworms or rats or bonobos or baboons or toucans or whatever, pigeons, you're an expert in that species. But it doesn't necessarily answer the great question of what are we? How do you answer the greater question of what are humans then? 
Well, that's why I do evolutionary psychology research. And that's also why I'm a clinical psychologist too, because at, at the individual level, I find that that's also an answer to the question of what are humans. And, and also there are other human uh, endeavors that are equally interesting to try to answer that. Art, art and music and, and poetry and, and the movies, literature, all of these aspects of answering what is it to be a human are relevant. But from a scientific perspective, it's why I do evolutionary psychology. Do you think those other methods are epistemologically valuable as well in terms of how we come to know we, I guess, on our planet, how you on your planet come to know your species and come to acquire knowledge in general? In other words, is art an equally valid way of knowing as science, knowing in general? We spoke to a poet, uh, a scholar of poetry a while ago, and she was really focused on the idea that poetry was a mechanism for being able to identify the value of things the value of things that don't necessarily have a monetary connection to them, such as a beautiful, quiet country morning. You can't scientifically evaluate that, but you can through a yeah. poem. I, th I, think, I think that's what I'd be trying to explain to you. Uh, it's not a method of knowing, it's a way of experiencing. And it tells you about what your fellow humans are experiencing, and it tells you how it is to be human and how to experience things as a human. So I think art is all about that experience and therefore also the value. So Isn't that intersubjective though? Yeah, exactly. It's quite intersubjective. I mean, there are, there are, there are scholars of literature now who have a Darwinian perspective rather than a Freudian. It's a pretty scary idea, but you can actually be a literary scientist who's not a Marxist or a Freudian or a Freudian Marxist you and actually have a Darwinian approach. And we are storytelling animals. And there are some aspects of stories that we like. Sometimes we don't like that we like those aspects of stories. For example, we seem to like male heroes who are violent against our enemies. We seem to like that a lot. Now, it would be nice if we liked female violent heroes too, or non-violent heroes even. But the point is, there seem to be some intersubjective, typical human, human universal features of what we like in a story, how we like a story to be told. If a story breaks too much with, with the schemata for how we want a story to be, it's at least much more difficult to make many people want to buy it. Do you think or that this has to do with this desire to create an equality of outcome? where we've heard the story, where humans have heard the story for so long about how things go, the male hero, the violent hero, that they realize that there's a better option for how humans should be. And so they attempt to force that because they want to be able to move away from this archaic evolutionary holdover. <laughs> the interesting thing is, when you just ask 
if, if you just sort of measure people's preferences throughout history for these stories, you'll find that it's very much the same story being told over several thousand years. And there is, there is sort of phylogenetic work, I mean, based upon storylines and story uh, uh, aspects and features, which can trace many of our fairy tales over 5,000 years. And it's odd how it really doesn't change a lot and how some, some of these aspects just seem to make more sense to us. So this is like Joseph Campbell's work. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it's interesting that science also. Joe, Joe contains... Carroll. I'm sorry. Joe Carroll. Joe Carroll. Well, I was thinking of Joseph Campbell and the conservation of myth, the heroic uh, quest. Oh yeah. Right. Right. So Joe Carroll, which I thought you said was, is, is an evolutionary literary scientist. Gotcha. We'll check him out. Yep. Um, so, so I don't know. I think currently we want to change the kind of stories we tell to each other because we want to make a change to the world through the stories. But that's one of the things that we, we do believe a lot in, that if we just change how people are told stories, they will change their psychology. And that's not really necessarily true. A lot of a lot of campaigns to change attitudes backfire and do not work within health psychology. Um, the laws against smoking in Europe changed smoking behavior overnight, where one had had uh, public health campaigns for many decades having no effect whatsoever. Um, the amount of anorexia in Europe hasn't changed much since 1940s, 50s, despite models on billboards changing sizes for every trend. Hmm. So there are some biostatics here, questions of what do we find most attractive? And most males find curves and signs of reproductive fitness and fat reserves, subcutaneous fat reserves, more attractive than women who are sexually uh, competing against each other for thinness. And if you look at models in in gentlemen's magazines, you'll see that they are more buxom than models in women's magazines who are a lot thinner. And the same happens for men. Young men today compete for muscle mass and really seem to be pretty uh, naive about how, how uninteresting many women find excessive muscle mass. And it's also a sign of narcissism. And I suppose in our evolutionary past, any man with that kind of muscle mass hasn't just eaten all of the food in the village. He's also eaten some of the babies, I suppose. (laughs) Do you think that 
the release of human sexuality from reproduction is going to accelerate changes that have held for a long time. One of the problems with the pill is that one of the consequences, according to some of the work, reduces sexual interest. So it's like you can now have sex without pregnancy, but you might not want to have it after all. So, so that is one aspect. Condoms should be given the health benefits a lot more popular than they are. Um, and still the slightest um, disturbance to sexual gratification seems to make them a little less attractive. So I'd say we haven't fully managed to free ourselves completely from reproduction. Another important thing from my perspective is that many or almost most of our sexual choices are really governed by our past reproductive physiology. So women might be very sexually liberal, but due to evolutionary past, having sex with strangers just for the fun of it um, is both a little dangerous, it's not necessarily very gratifying, and it does carry the risk of pregnancy. So even in a situation that is safe and one knows what one wants, one might choose not to do so. So I think, I think this idea of humans being entirely freed from their human nature is not very scientific. I suppose the question is how difficult it is to study something that's happening in the moment. Oh, impossible, according to Heisenberg. <laughs> uh. There's clearly changes that are happening on Earth that will lead to perhaps a different future. Less from... reproduction, you mean? There's definitely less reproduction. Populations might start to plateau, if not fall, for the first time in what? A while. Five, six, seven thousand years. Well, yeah, I, I love Japanese and Italians, but we seem to be losing them. Exactly. So it seems like the Earth is coming for a new, different phase. A phase of stability rather than exponential growth. But first, we have to manage to get past a super high population. So actually, at the current moment, in many westernized cultures or many, many developed countries, um, and we see this even in cities in, in developing countries too, um, number of children declines pretty swiftly after one has a financial security or a security for survival of offspring. But we, we still have such a large population growth on the planet that one of the greatest challenges for our environment is population growth. But one of the, one of the important lessons that we seem to be learning is that we might, it, I mean, it might become precarious but once we've passed a certain point, 
there seems to be such progress in the world that we might be able to see a decline in population after that. So first there might be trouble, but thereafter there might be some hope. From an evolutionary science perspective, what do you think is the central question that faces humans right now? From an existential standpoint? From a scientific standpoint. As an evolutionary psychologist, what do you think is the central uh, question? Oh, we've we've got some we've got some problems that we need to overcome. So our minds are not evolved to take care of everyone or the future or even the planet. So we we haven't evolved to be able to make that kind of decision that we need to make to make sure that we take care of life on this planet, the planet itself. So there are limits to our ability to not be here and now and actually make the best choices for the future. One of the greatest challenges for the environment is going to be overpopulation in a few decades time, but then maybe that will, that will sort itself out. Another problem is societies with too many men compared to women, so an operational sex ratio, which increases competition among males, which often then will be disenfranchised males. Uh, this, creates, this creates more volatile and violent and uh, expansive or colonizing uh, traditions, both for Portugal and for the Vikings. But we've got two countries, two, two nuclear powers that due to selective abortion in recent decades, now have a surplus of men both in India and in uh, China. So we've got, we've got quite a lot of international trouble brewing based upon human evolutionary psychology. So in developing countries, they're going to want to have more babies than what maybe our planet can uh, cape with, um, cope with. And in Western countries, we're going to have a decline of children because we're so well off, we don't need to. And at the same time, we've, we're not going to be able to compute intuitively what we need to, to take care of the environment. And some places we might have devastating wars instead of peace and progress. Wow, sounds like you got your work cut out for you. Well, luckily, I'm just interested in the here and now and why people are having sex or not. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Kinnear. <laughs> it's been a lot of questions. Did we answer all of them? I mean, did we even answer the four first? Well, I think we might have to do this again sometime. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. It was all our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Bye.